It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how Mark Twain invented the bra clasp. Kind of. Plus, beavers doing the work of million-dollar machines to restore land and prevent wildfires in a fraction of the time and for a fraction of the cost. And a new twist has emerged in the McDonald's milkshake machine lawsuit saga. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Today is Mark Twain's birthday, having been born in Missouri in 1835 as Samuel Clemens, so I thought we should take a moment to honor one of his most significant contributions to society. No, not the adventures of Tom Sawyer, or even his description of fingerprinting as a method for solving crimes before it was a common strategy, which is true, by the way. No, no, I am talking about Mark Twain's invention of the bra. Clasp. Yes, you heard that right. Mark Twain invented the bra clasp. So Mark Twain was a big fan of innovation. He was friends with both Nikola Tesla and Thomas Edison. He claimed to be the first person in Boston to own a telephone for private use and was also one of the first writers to use a typewriter to write a full book. There even exists one surviving film of Mark Twain that was shot in 1909 by Edison himself. As for his contribution to the forensic use of fingerprinting, there was a precedent of fingerprinting in ancient Babylon as well as in ancient China, but those were pretty much unknown to 19th century Westerners. Twain's description of identifying a murderer via a thumbprint in his 1883 memoir Life on the Mississippi and subsequent more detailed account of fingerprint identification in his 1893 Puddinghead Wilson both predate the popular adoption of fingerprinting as a forensic strategy. It was around the same time Puddinghead Wilson was published that the first known murder case was solved using fingerprint analysis. How Twain was able to guess at this strategy and whether he influenced the usage of it with his memoir is a bit murky. But in addition to writing about groundbreaking technology, Twain also dabbled in his own tangible inventions, registering three patents in his lifetime. One was a board game to help teach children history, but it was so complicated that it never took off. He also invented a self-pasting scrapbook because he was such an avid fan of scrapbooking and so annoyed by other methods of gluing items into his scrapbooks. His invention worked basically like a stamp, in which the adhesive was activated when wet. And this invention actually did quite well. According to the West Virginia University Libraries, which exhibits some of Twain's scrapbooks, he had made $50,000 from sales of these self-pasting scrapbooks by 1885 alone. And as they remained in production in until 1902, WVU Libraries estimates, quote, Twain's blank books earned him more profits than those he wrote, end quote. 
As much as Twain loved scrapbooking, however, he equally hated suspenders. And so he invented an improvement to adjustable and detachable elastic straps for garments. It was basically like an elastic strap in two pieces that could be adjusted and connected to each other via a row of hooks and eyes. A couple of things to know about suspenders back in Twain's time. First is that they were a relatively new invention, only about two generations in. In fact, Mark Twain's patent for this improvement is one of the earliest suspender-related patents that exists in the U.S., Second is that suspenders didn't have metal clasps then like they do now. They just had loops on the end that went around buttons sewn onto pants. Pretty much all pants had buttons on them for your suspenders. So Twain's invention worked within the confines of that. One end of each piece of the straps had buttonholes so you could button them onto your pants, and then the other end of each one had the hook or eye to connect to each other. It was really quite a bit like a belt, but using the existing technology for suspenders. And per his patent description, it could be used to tighten pants, or underpants, or shirts, or even corsets. In the patent description, Twain wrote, quote, The advantages of such an adjustable and detachable elastic strap are so obvious that they need no explanation. End quote. Quite confident he was there, perhaps too confident, because it turns out the strap never even made it to being manufactured. First, it got strung up in a legal battle, because the patent office had received a patent request for a very similar invention around the same time. So Twain had to prove that he had indeed invented the strap before a Mr. Henry C. Lockwood. He did end up winning the battle by writing a narrative account of how the invention came to him and when, with the corroboration of his brother Orion. But then, quoting Country Life, His strap and fastener never really took off, waistcoats eventually coming with an adjustable buckle which served the same purpose, and pantaloons falling out of fashion, with the waistlines of men's trousers settling down back onto the waist, making a belt a more viable option once more, Twain's invention seemed destined for the scrap heap. End quote. But a different use for the elastic strap would come into being after both Twain and his patent had expired, one which, at least to him at the time, was not so obvious as his patent description said. Quoting further from Country Life, Attempts were made during the 19th century to liberate women from the restrictive tyranny of the corset. It was not until 1889 that a garment that could claim any relationship with the modern bra emerged. Hermione Cadol, a French designer, had the bright idea of splitting the traditional corset into two, the top section supporting the breasts by means of straps, while the lower section provided shape to the waist. The word brassiere, borrowed from an old French term for bodice, began to emerge a few years later, and by 1907 became mainstream when used in the magazine Vogue to describe the upper part of Cadol's split corsets. In 1914, the New York socialite Mary Phelps Jacob invented and patented the bra as we would know it today. Its advantages were immediately obvious, being lightweight, soft, comfortable, and separating the breasts naturally. Jacob later sold the patent for her invention, also known as the backless bra, to the Warner Brothers Corset Company, and it quickly established itself as an essential piece of a woman's lingerie. Something was needed, though, to ensure that the bra strap at the back remained in place. 
In that respect, bra technology has developed little from its early days, and the clasp which secures the elastic band even now is none other than Twain's adjustable detachable strap for garments. Of course, by that time Twain's patent had long since expired and he was dead, I'm sure he would have appreciated the irony of that. End quote. So did he really invent the bra clasp? Yes and no. In much the same way that some claim he influenced the rise of forensic fingerprinting, it's more that he had the right idea a little before it became popular, and others came up with the same thing later on, whether or not they had any idea that Mark Twain had also had the same thought. Still, as a man who liked a good story, I do think if he were still around today, he would probably proclaim himself as the inventor of the bra clasp, giving high school boys just one more reason to hate the classic author. This story comes courtesy of a quick link from Jason over at Kotke.org, which I wanted to dive into a bit more. So back in 2014, ecologists needed to restore a dried-out floodplain in Northern California that posed a wildfire risk. The usual route would have been to revive the habitat using a bunch of heavy machinery, a process that would cost a million dollars at minimum. And they considered it, but ultimately went a different direction. Beavers. They welcomed beavers back into the floodplain, where they quickly went to work building dams which retained water and revitalized the habitat. Lynette Batt, the conservation director of Placer Land Trust, which is responsible for the Dottie Ravine Preserve where the floodplain is located, told the Sacramento Bee over the summer, quote, It went from dry grassland to totally revegetated, trees popping up, willows, wetland plants of all type, different meandering stream channels across about 60 acres of floodplain, end quote. And it only cost $58,000. Oh, and also, they expected the beaver-led restoration could take as long as a decade. The beavers did it in just three years. But why beavers, and how does all of this work? Well, beavers are uniquely suited for the task. As the Sacramento Bee points out, they're able to change a landscape to suit their needs better than any animal besides us humans. Quoting further, the beaver on land is like a chicken nugget walking through the landscape for predators, said Emily Fairfax, assistant professor of environmental science and resource management at California State University Channel Islands. They're fat and they're slow and anything would be glad to have them for a meal. But beavers are quick and agile in water, able to protect themselves from predators. They build dams that push flowing stream water over the banks to create ponds and dig canals into the landscape to form an expansive wetland, end quote. But beavers' desires for dams and our human desire for, say, planting new trees often comes into conflict. We've also historically liked to kill beavers for their fur. From the 1600s up until the early 1900s, colonizers in North America decimated the beaver population, going from roughly 400 million beavers at their peak to our current counts of about 15 to 25 million. And that's after a 20th century rebound once things like beaver hats and coats fell out of fashion. So when an organization wants to try using beavers to restore an ecosystem, a growing trend, the first step is to stop trapping beavers, still a common practice in areas where, again, the interests of beavers and humans usually come into conflict. If it's a place with nearby beavers, you just stop trapping and wait. But sometimes you might have to build your own beaver-like dams and then hope that a beaver will find it and take over. 
Once the beavers have worked their magic, however, the benefits are numerous. Quoting again, Beaver wetlands are like giant sponges, collecting water from rain and snowmelt during the winter and slowly releasing moisture during the summer and dry periods. As a result, they're helpful during droughts and against wildfires. In my research, I saw it persist for three drought years in a row, and then the drought ended, Fairfax said. That water can remain accessible year after year after year during drought. Fairfax said she found evidence of five instances where beaver wetlands stalled the progress of a wildfire, including the 2000 Manta Fire in California and the 2018 Badger Creek Fire in Wyoming. Wetland vegetation doesn't turn into the dry, high-risk fuel that feeds wildfires. Instead, the moisture can slow down the wildfire. End quote. Fairfax notes that the wetland might not necessarily stop a fire, but even slowing it down can give firefighters time to get a handle on it and also give other animals a a safe spot to wait it out. So it sounds like we need as many beavers as we can get on the West Coast to help with the wildfires. Plus, you know, as a bonus, beavers are intensely loyal creatures, always happy to take care of a handful of English school children dropped off by a fawn if it will help restore their lion god to power. So back in April, I talked about a controversy that was brewing in McDonald's milkshakes. I'll link to the episode in the show notes if you want the whole story, but in brief, the notoriously always broken down McDonald's milkshake machines are made by a company called Taylor. One reason they're always broken down is that they're pretty complicated and temperamental, and they also require a Taylor technician to fix them. The manual literally doesn't provide any instructions on how to fix it. When it's broke from any cause, it just shuts down and you've got to wait for a tech to come out and tell you what's wrong and then fix it. A few years ago, a guy named Jeremy O'Sullivan discovered a hidden system of basically cheat codes in the machine that would tell you what exactly the problem was if you inputted the correct string of 16 buttons. Being a bit of an entrepreneur, O'Sullivan invented a user-friendly device that McDonald's franchisees could attach to the Taylor machines and which would tell them exactly what was wrong with their machine and how to fix it. He and his wife who partnered with him called the device Kitsch, K-Y-T-C-H, Kitsch. But Taylor and McDonald's weren't too happy about this. They started telling franchisees that using a Kitsch could damage the Taylor machine, void its warranty, and, quote, cause serious human injury, end quote. And then they launched their own version of it, called the Taylor Shake Sunday Connectivity. That one-two punch essentially put Kitsch out of business. In addition to being understandably outraged at this turn of events and egregious assault on right to repair, O'Sullivan suspected even more foul play from Taylor, including hiring a PI to surreptitiously acquire a kitsch device and deliver it to Taylor where it was studied and copied. A few months ago, the story made headlines again when a California judge issued a temporary restraining order against Taylor and gave the company 24 hours to turn over any kitsch devices that O'Sullivan alleged they had gotten their hands on. And now we have another update. Last week, Wired and others reported that Taylor had been made to publicly file over 800 pages of internal emails and presentations mentioning their approach to kitsch. These documents contradict Taylor's previous public claims that they, quote, have not imitated Kitsch's device and would have no desire to do so, end quote. 
In reality, there are numerous email exchanges and even full presentations directly referencing Kitsch and discussing how they can make their Taylor Shake Sunday connectivity device more like Kitsch. The now-released emails also indicate that at least at points, McDonald's was the one wanting to come down harder on Kitsch than Taylor was, although they have now reached out to several outlets with the statement that, quote, there's no conspiracy here, McDonald's has never attempted to copy or steal Kitsch's technology, end quote, which might be technically true if it was Taylor doing the copying and stealing, though Taylor argues that Kitsch publicly marketed many of the features it's claiming in the lawsuit were true trade secrets, so like, you know, really they didn't do anything wrong. Fair enough, but that and the boatload of internal documents still paints a very different picture than the line they were sticking to six months ago. I think there are a lot more ripples to come in this milkshake story as the lawsuit drags on, and mostly I just can't wait for the HBO Max docuseries that's going to be done on this in a few years from now, I'm sure. And if you want more weird McDonald's lore, I'll also link to the September 2nd episode of this show diving into the curious whiplash origins of the old McDonald's character Grimace. Of course, a more appropriate mascot for the chain might now be a milkshake version of the Hamburglar. All right, well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.